Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is March 21st, 2016, and this is episode 156. My name is Jake English, and I'm here, as always, riding on the coattails of Scott Magnus. If you're listening to my voice right now, you're most likely doing it at our website, which is birdseyeviewbaltimore.com, where this weekly podcast appears and an occasional blog. You can also find us at Baltimore Sports Report, as we are a proud member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. And you can also find the show on baseballtalkradio.com. Check us out on all sorts of third-party platforms, such as Stitcher, Miro, DoubleTwist, and of course, iTunes. And if you do so, please rate and review this show it really helps us out. You can catch us all over the place on social media. We're at Facebook at facebook.com slash BEVcast. We are on Periscope. We're on Snapchat. But the best place to find us is, of course, on Twitter, where we tweet at BirdseyeViewBAL. Before we get to the drink of the week, I'd like to remind you all to make sure that you check out uh, Birdland Radio, birdlandradio.com. You can find uh, all sorts of information, including there's some interesting prizes, raffles, and other sort of opportunities for you to check out. Um, so make sure that you you listen in on that. Lots of local podcasts getting together the day before opening day, uh, and we'll be taking part as well. Most important time, drink of the week. Scotty, what are you drinking for this drink of the week? Jake, I am drinking a Evolution Primal Pale Ale. I am drinking nothing but water. I had a um, I had a weekend of excess, and I am still trying to dry out. So uh, I am a, I'm drinking a a tall glass of water. So you're saying a little under the weather? I'm not as young as I would like to be, and my weekend was a very clear indication of that. Gotcha. So you're a little sick. So you know what that means. Yep, it's time for the medical wing. Oh, all right. So this big, is not a good one. <laughs> no. So big news this week uh, was Kevin Gossman shut down with shoulder tendonitis. Uh, had a cortisone shot on Sunday. Was told to rest for two to three days. Apparently, had been dealing with the issue for the last seven to ten days. Um, Birdland. It was pretty much time to panic. Basically. Um, okay. What's the worst case scenario here, in your opinion, Jake? Me, the worst case scenario is that he's shut down for the year. Okay, I don't think it's that severe. Like he, that'd be like rotator cuff surgery or something like that. But I don't think we can need to get that crazy. I'm not saying it's likely. I'm saying that's the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is he's basically done for his entire career. <laughs> yes. Okay. The worst case scenario is that he's patient zero for the zombie apocalypse. You're correct. Or the Orioles basically said this is not worth it. We're going to trade him to the Cubs, 
and then all of a sudden he's going to become a Cy Young pitcher. That would be the worst case scenario, okay? <laughs> and and a and a draft pick, yes. Um, but it, ideally, I mean, I think it's going to be a two to three week turnaround time. I think the biggest concern that I have is is he going to be available for the beginning of the season? If he's not, who fills that spot? Look, we talked about this before with the roster flexibility. Um, the Orioles do need, not need a fifth starter until the second week of April. My question would be, does Gossman become that fifth starter to a certain aspect and get gets pushed back to that second week of April mm-hmm. in order to basically give him some time to recover? I don't think we're going to know until the end of this week to see how he responds. Gossman was all positive, thinking that he was going to go out and throw it, and then the Orioles basically said, well, let's hold off on it for the time being. They may just be being overly cautious because – they're expecting a lot from him in this coming year. And maybe this is just, let's be extra cautious and make sure that we don't put ourselves into a bind. If he's not 100% ready to go, I expect to see him start the season on the DL just so they're not in an inning situation with him any more than they're already uncomfortable with toward the end of the season. Or you could optional. <laughs> there is that possibility. Yeah. All right, we've still got Matt Weeters, right? Yeah. Still got some elbow soreness. Look, he's taking batting practice. He took batting practice on, on Sunday at least. Um, and he made 25 throws moving out as far as 60 feet. And that's the first time that he's thrown since being shut down on March 12th. Um, look, I, I don't want to freak out, but I'm not encouraged. And I would like him to be better now. Yeah, moving out to 60 feet sure sounds like coming back from Tommy John. Yeah. Yeah. Does, doesn't sound encouraging. He's not even making it back to the mount. Yeah, no. Uh, Xavier Avery, right hip flexor. Nobody big, cares. Nobody cares. And uh, Chris Tillman is dealing with stuff. Yeah, here's the thing. I I watched uh, this mid-game interview. You know, they do that in spring yeah. training where where the starters once they're done. Anyway, so he gave this interview, and they the broadcast booth asked him about his health, and he said that yeah, he wasn't really feeling all the way uh, there with his legs. Um, you know, because he he was also dealing with the hip issue, and said that he he uh, wasn't able to do all the things that he wanted to out there. He said he wasn't making excuses, but he, he couldn't execute all of his pitches because of the conditions of his legs. Um, which got me wondering, how often is this the case with Chris Tillman? How how uh, frequent is this is this injury? If this is a, a nagging injury that he always has, um, this certainly goes a long way to explaining things. Again, not excusing them, but explaining them. And I wonder uh, if and at what point this season that would get sewn up. Um, never. Who knows. <laughs> Worst case scenario, he goes to the Cubs and uh, becomes a Cy Young candidate. Oh, wait. We already pulled that bit. Um, Yeah, I'm tired of talking about injuries because it's just making me sad and panic a lot inside. Instead, let's go to 140 characters less on this week on the Twitters. First tweet comes to the the age-old debate. This comes from This is Birdland. You can follow him at O's underscore Birdland. Scope hits 25 dingers this year. Book it. This person has been listening to you and Jabby Burns all off season. If, if they knew anything, it'd be the over and under is 26 and a half, specifically so I could win this bet with Jabby Burns. But Scope is definitely going to hit a good amount of home runs this year. The question is, again, how many strikeouts is he going to have? I think Scope is easily looking at a 20 plus home run season. I don't know how high he can potentially get. I certainly hope it's under that 26 and a half so I can win my bet. All right. I have a very important question for you. Can we stop talking about this now? Um, the Orioles, sure. This tweet comes from the Orioles Hangout, which tweets at Orioles Hangout. Uh, Hyunsoo Kim 
has been on base 11 times in the last 17 at-bats. And that's, of course, a tweet that came out on the 20th of March. So we're over this Kim thing, right? I'm, I'm putting this to bed. We're not talking about it anymore. He had a rough start. And now he's done with that. Yeah. It's like, imagine the whole aspect of getting into a country for the first time and then getting acclimated. Next, I want to go to a tweet from the Baltimore Sports Report. Our friends that tweet, of course, at BAL Sports Report. Miss you, old friend, is the tweet. And it refers to a uh, tweet from Major League Baseball that says that the Marlins have tabbed Wei-Yin Chen as the opening day starter. Now, let me tell you, checking up on X's via social media is Always a recipe for disaster. Baltimore Sports Report. Zach Wilt. Take it easy. It'll mm. just hurt worse if you look. Love hurts. Jeez. Um, all right. Next one up. This goes into the also gross category, just like my singing. This comes from Matt Kremenitzer. You can follow him at Matt Kremenitzer. And, of course, he posts for Camden Depot. Um, he writes, Clevenger was asked if O's and Mariners use data differently. Quote, Definitely. It was more old school in Baltimore. And of course, it goes to a fan graphs Sunday notes section. And uh, I actually sat down um, and talked with Zach Wilt um, from Baltimore Sports Today about this topic and uh, regarding some other topics of advanced defensive um, metrics. Um, that was an article that I posted over at Bird's Eye View Baltimore. Highly recommend checking out my article for my own self-promotion, but also check out Baltimore Sports Today for a discussion of that article and also the Orioles' old-school statistical analysis. Next week comes, and we'll go. Um, it goes from Matt Bonzi. Um, Mike bon- Bonzerio, sorry. Um, you can follow him at Bonzi777. And this is actually saying, in response to a tweet from Matt Taylor from Rover 34, remember when Tim Raines brought his kids into the Orioles clubhouse? Mike repost, that's nothing. Calricum Sr. let two of his actually play in games. Mike, nice. Well done, well done. You know what? We haven't talked to Matt in a long time it's it's spring training this is the annual love fest between bird's eye view and roar from 34 yeah let's get sentimental matt taylor is the man behind roar from 34 which all of you should be reading. And look, I'm not just saying that because Matt's about to be on this program. I'm saying that because I read this blog, and you should too. Make sure you check it out at RoarFrom34.com. Listen, Roar has offered Orioles fans a little humor, history, and homerism since 2006. Wait, wait, that can't be right. 2006? Like, who would seriously put themselves in that position to write about the Orioles for 10-plus years? We will find out. Okay. Matt's in the rotation as one of the guest bloggers at MassInSports.com and can be found on Twitter at RoarFrom34. Matt Taylor, thank you so much for joining us at Bird's Eye View. A long-time listener, I think third-time caller now, and, and pleased to be here again. And, and yes, since 2006, that speaks to a lot of pain and a lot of questioning of why am I still doing this, but I am. That sounds like Orioles fandom right there. Pretty much, in a nutshell. <laughs> how, are, how are you still, like... You know, not an alcoholic. How do you still have functioning relationships? How does blogging about the Orioles through the dark period for now 10 years with just a couple of good ones at the end, how has that not devastated you as a human being? 
we qualify that, that I'm not actually devastated and, and that I do have functioning relationships, I, I don't think that could be proved. This is a but, fair uh, point. No, it's, I, I honestly don't know. I've, I was telling someone recently that I've written like the final post for my blog several times for several years, but um, I just keep at it. And for a long time, I, I told myself, well, I'm going to just keep doing it until they have a winning season. And then they had a winning season. I was like, oh, it's actually a lot more fun when they win. Um, and it just kept me interested in a variety of ways. And it's also, I think, it's long been a, a healthy outlet uh, to have the blog to, to kind of get through uh, what we've been through since 2006 um, and also to have a, a, a place to celebrate on those rare occasions recently where there's something to celebrate. Well, 10 years is incredible. It's actually your 11th season, right? But But 10 years? That's correct. And uh, let me tell you, the site looks great. I know that you recently redesigned the website. It looks fantastic, uh, very easy to navigate. But uh, that's not all. You got some other things going on underneath the covers there at Roar from Thirty Four. Um, tell us a little bit about your your emphasis this year for Flashback Friday. Yeah, so the Flashback Fridays I've been doing for a long time, um, <clears throat> and they just kind of pick out uh, some item from Orioles history. Often, you know, I try to relate it to what's going on with the team, but this year, I've decided to go ahead and make them all focus on the 1966 team as we celebrate the anniversary of the Orioles' first World Series title. And um, I think one of the things as I've gotten into Orioles history over time doing the blog is, you know, I'm doing as much learning as anyone else. I, I don't claim to be um, an expert or the expert by any stretch. And so it's fun, kind of fun to, to dig around and get to, to know the team. Uh, when I started doing it, it was in part a realization that, you know, this is an organization that had been so great. Um, that was really had become the laughing stock of baseball. So it wanted to, to put some emphasis back on uh, the, the pride of the organization. And now you know, we're, in, we're in better times, but uh, I still think it's important to look back and, and try and contextualize 1966 and also have some, some fun with it. So each Friday throughout the season, I'll be focusing on various aspects of the team. And um, I really, I like the lesser known stuff and kind of dig around for that. So there'll be some, some things that people probably already knew, but then also, uh, some original items that are, are hopefully a little more rare that maybe surprise some folks. Well, I know, you know, if we look back at 1966, I think one of the things that pops in my head again is has to go back to the Orioles going out and trading for Frank Robinson. I think that we can look forward to this year of 2016, where the Orioles in the offseason went out and traded for Mark Trumbo. And of course, Mark Trumbo is going to be that catalyst that catapults them into a World Series title. He's going to teach us how to win. He's going to teach us how to win. Yeah. Exactly. As soon as we got him, we just knew this is going to be a winner going forward. Oh, very, very similar. It's, it's almost a perfect parallel. It's kind of eerie. I'll tell you what. I have seen more spring training ties in the Mark Trumbo era than ever before in recent memory. So I think we we were on the path. Yes, exactly. We're, we're that close, basically, to hitting it. So we, we have to cover an important part here. You're a veteran of the show. And we jumped right into Orioles talk, which is a foul on all of our parts. Serious faux pas. So the question is... Drink of the week. What's in your glass this this week? Well, as I answer that question, I want to start by thanking Ryan Blake for being on the show last week and, and making this an easy question because after his drink of the week, I, I don't think I could possibly look bad. Oh, uh, man. I'm, I'm, I'm drinking a New Thunder Stout Farmhouse Ale. It's by Butternut Beer and Ale in New York. It is quite good. Um, and I think, you know, the, the thunder that the Orioles will be bringing this year, it's uh, quite fitting, but... With the p- pitching staff, they could be uh, put out to pasture. So the moo, the thunder, it's all there. Moo, thunder, stealth. 
I like this. Uh, this is this is a molding your drink choices to the team. And, and seriously, Angry Orchard with Fireball, absolutely horrible. Ryan Blake, I'm still pissed off at you. It, it's as simple as that. Poor guy. Yeah. What can you speak? Did, did I see that you guys actually followed up after the show and, and tried this this concoction? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we actually went out to the bar um, and uh, decided to order it just to see how good it actually was. And um, it was completely horrible. Um, but we decided to periscope it. It's something that the new kids are doing these days where they're putting videos to Twitter. And um, yeah, it was it was horrible. So um, what can I say? Never take advice from a 21-year-old is the best way that we can go about this. Ryan, I still love you. Yeah. Somebody on the show has are- to. You guys are dedicated to your work. Well done. Well, that's at least one way to put it. So I want to go through a few pieces that you've written at Work From 34 recently. Uh, the one that I wanted to start with, actually, was uh, regarding starters. And you were discussing some of the early game struggles um, that uh, pitchers such as Chris Tillman and Giovanni Garardo has had. But there's one thing that we wanted to pay particular interest to in this article. Jake um, had a specific aspect for giving you props for the Madonna reference. Um, that's a that's a pretty solid musical reference right there. That's right up our alley of actually knowing who and what that music is. So thank you very much for making us feel like we could understand and relate to this post. And, and I'll have I'm glad, I'm glad it made things more relatable. I'll have you know that that any uh, baseball post that has me uh, consistently humming Madonna, early Madonna, throughout the rest of the day is is a win in my book. <laughs> my my work here is done. So I wanted to go into one of the things with Tillman. I thought it was an interesting article because you pulled out a relatively rare stat um, in terms of TOPS+, which the nerds, like myself, absolutely love this stat. Um, But I thought it was interesting, too, because you look at the career, and I think we've always talked about Chris Tillman and his struggles throughout his career of coming in. And people raise the question of, like, why is that? You know, is it velocity-related? Is it that he's not warming up early enough? And, you know, you came back and you posted some of the numbers, and you're absolutely right. He was about 20% worse over his entire career than the rest of the league starting out the game in the first inning, the second inning, and third inning. However, this is where me as the nerd comes back and douses you with water um, because I think it was interesting that if you looked at 2015's numbers, it was kind of not exactly the same. So I went up and pulled the TOPS pluses up for the first inning, second inning, third inning, and actually the numbers were relatively good. He had an 84, a 90, and a 63 TOPS plus during 2015. So I was looking at it, I was like, what exactly is causing this deviation? Because whenever I see a difference like that, I'm always like, what could possibly be the issue? So I just want to break this down. You're telling me that the only thing that's consistent about Chris Tillman is how inconsistently he sucks throughout the game? Absolutely. There's no question about it. But I, the, the one thing that I noticed, at least looking at the stats, was um, if you looked at Tillman, it always looked like when he had this struggle, it always looked like it was something with his command. So, for example, I looked at it, the strikeouts basically remained the same, but the walk rate went up significantly during these periods where that TOPS plus came in. I have no idea why that's the case in the fourth, fifth, and sixth inning, but I think it's interesting that um, over his career, um, he has had an issue. Now, the one thing I wanted to get, Matt, your opinion on is – I know Chris Tellman had issues with uh, the American League East, the Toronto Blue Jays, and so forth. Is it possible that Chris Tillman is basically being a little bit more consistent in the strike zone for the first inning and throwing it right down the middle of the plate? And by throwing it right down the middle of the plate, the Blue Jays and these American League East batters basically just teed off on him to a certain regard? Uh, you know, it, it could be. It's, it's interesting, and I, I like uh, I like that you dug into it a little bit more. 
I'll tell you, I never dealt with uh, that specific stat before, and I, I went into that post looking just to see what are the splits by inning and, and figuring that you know you know enough by ERA or anything else, and that's when I looked down the line and saw TOPS plus and thought this just this makes a whole lot of sense, yep. especially looking over a guy's career, um, and then I think it, it does generate an interesting conversation of, of why is this and um, related related to the deviation you saw there. I didn't talk about it much in the post, but. God, it was interesting. I expected to find a similar pattern with uh, Ubaldo Jimenez, and mm-hmm. as it turned out, it's like his yeah his first inning was was bad, um, and then it's like usually about the fourth or fifth inning he would just fall off a cliff, but then tremendous numbers in like the second and third inning, and so those are the sort of things I'm like, okay, so why is this guy starting off getting you know knocked around, locked in for a couple innings, and then getting knocked around um, even even more? So I think that that's an interesting explanation. I don't know. <clears throat> Um, numbers-wise, that would be the, the case. So have you looked at some of the, the other numbers to, to establish that it might be a, a command thing there with uh, and the AL East, or is that just kind of a, a hunch? It's just a hunch because I haven't gone in because that yeah. takes actual work. But I think we can basically narrow this down to one specific reason behind why this is occurring. So I did do some internal research, and the one thing that I noticed is the bullpen catchers that are in the bullpen working with the pitchers before the game has had a constant turnover, and the Orioles have rectified this issue by bringing back their bullpen catcher this year. So I'm expecting now that we've got some you know, consistency in our bullpen catcher that we're going to have some great results coming forward for the first, second, and third innings. Yeah, I think we can put some metrics together on that, on uh, on bullpen catcher. No, that, that hurts me. That hurts that you? Hurts that hurts you? What about, I mean, could it, could it be as, when you talk about a guy like uh, Abaldo who has trouble right out of the gate, then settles down and then gets into trouble again in the fourth and fifth inning. Could it be as simple as, um, you know, the first time through the order he's okay except for the really good hitters who are right up front, and then by the time it's the second time through the order, everybody's caught up to him? No, you're absolutely right. I think that's a perfect uh, scenario to a certain regard is if you're going to not have really great command or your stuff is not that good as it is, which most of our pitchers are going to be three or four starters, if you're going against top-of-the-rotation players – more than likely, that's when you're going to see your failures unless you're a hacking, swinging team like the Orioles will be this year. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. If you're going to go against the best players, which is going to happen the first inning, that should be when you have your worst inning, all things considering. All right. And that's, that's really, when I went into it, that's one of the things I was expecting and kind of um, anticipating seeing was that, okay, this is going to be a time to the lineup you know, issue. And the, the inspiration, I guess, overall for the, the post beyond the fact that, you know, our guys are getting knocked around in, in the first inning in spring training is thinking, okay, this, this team does not have very good starting pitching. Uh, it's going to be heavily reliant on the, the bullpen. So let's look at these guys and say, hey, can we get through? How many innings can we get through before we you know, need to lean on the, the bullpen? Um, is it a time for the lineup thing? And going in with that, that in mind, then finding that, oh, well, <laughs> for at least a couple of our guys, even just getting through the lineup once is going to be, be an issue. But it really, it really came out of a concern of I don't see our starting rotation doing nearly enough. It's a, it's a point of great concern for me. And, you know, a lot of thought to shortening the game through the bullpen, but it's how, how much can we shorten it and how much can we rely on that bullpen and what can we get within five or six innings from uh, the, the rotation we currently have. Yeah, and, and just to kind of tie up this topic to us in regard, and I want to tie in both Obaldo Jimenez and Chris Tillman, but Abaldo Jimenez, we've talked about this on this podcast, and we I think we've talked about it in articles. Jimenez's p- 
pitch delivery, not so much in terms of mechanics, but the way he selects when to throw certain pitches to both left-handed and right-handed pitching is very deliberate and very stylized to a certain regard. Whereas Chris Tillman, when Chris Tillman comes out in the first inning and you're watching him pitch, if that curveball is not on, you can immediately turn to the person you're watching with and say, hey, that curveball is not going to work for him. If Tillman has to just rely on his fastball today, it's going to be a long day for him. So it's almost the aspect of it's either good Tillman or bad Tillman based off of how good his curveball is that day, where Jimenez has a multitude of, I hate to say it, junk pitches to a certain aspect that he can go to in order to get that whiff. Tillman doesn't have that ability. If he doesn't have that curveball working, then he's acting as somewhat of an invisible pitcher, similar to like a Miguel Gonzalez. And again, if you're going to be chucking up 91 or 92 mile per hour fastballs, that's not fooling anyone in the American League East. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you just as a as a larger point, I, I appreciate the the input on this because you know I'm not someone that comes from a, a stats background per se in terms of you know that being my interest in the game, but I think over time we've gotten more comfortable with it. You know, one because I think the you know, what you're you're learning from them is is valuable, and you know I think it would be foolish to deny that. But I think also that um, you can generate good conversation, and, and I feel like that's what I'm getting here is you, know, you can start the conversation and, and get good feedback. Um, to, to kind of extend extend it from there, where I think too often a lot of these conversations evolve qu- pretty quickly into, you know, stats are good versus stats are bad. But uh, I, I much prefer a situation where it can find something interesting and then explore that a little more. So I appreciate that that exploration, that expertise you're providing. Yeah, and again, it's the aspect of too. It comes back to rely on your gut to a certain aspect. Again, we don't have the numbers to back it up. It's more the aspect of you just have a feel is the best way to describe it when you're watching the game. And you can see if the numbers back it up to a certain aspect, but not all the times the numbers really tell the whole story. Speaking about numbers not telling the whole story, Jake, you want to go into the next article? Yeah, I have uh, I have some questions for you, sir. Oh, hello. hello. <laughs> you, you bring up in another uh, recent article the three amigos. Um, and so I ask, I ask you, who are these three amigos of which you speak who are you you're not you're familiar with madonna but not the three amigos no i know the three amigos but i mean you're, you're using uh, the three I, amigos to refer to the three uh three gentlemen on the club who may be in a very historic uh grouping those who can amass 30 yeah. home runs and 180 plus uh strikeouts so uh who are we talking about in this exclusive club of yours this exclusive club we've got uh chris davis the newest acquisition for the Orioles, Pedro Alvarez, and then Mark Trumbo. All right. Chance to, to make history, two of them or even all three. So the real important question then is which one is Martin Short? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with Trumbo. <laughs> See, I would thought that Trumbo would have been Chevy Chase, but that's just me. But I would figure Pedro Alvarez would have definitely been a Martin Short, but <laughs> eh, what do I know? All right, now I understand that this 30 home run – 180 strikeout thing it's not a good club right it's it's not a it's not a good thing but my question to you is can the orioles lineup survive such an event of having three of these guys that are going to strike out almost or maybe more than 200 times is the 30 home runs enough to overcome the strikeouts and by this we mean please tell us yes (laughs) i think there's a yes in there and i've I've looked at that a little bit more since, since posting that. And I, I think um, I, was, I was reading an article. It was, I want to say it was like 2011 piece that was on um, fan graphs and it was dealing with the, you know, the issue of strikeouts and you know, are strikeouts uh, you know, truly bad. Where does it fit in? And, and kind of what they, they settled on was 
um, looking at what's happening around that and meaning that, you know, is, is a guy, um, you know, does he still have a decent on-base percentage would be one of the big, big takeaways. So you look at Chris Davis, um, and when he has, you know, high strikeout totals, he also has a lot of home runs and a lot of walks. I mean, Davis has had, during his, especially his big home run seasons, he's had a um, good to great on-base percentage. And so certainly, uh, in his case, I think that that's, that's very survivable. It's not a, not a huge issue. Uh, it's more of a concern, uh, especially with, with Alvarez, because Alvarez, <laughs> the year that Alvarez hit 36 home runs, uh, I want to say his on-base percentage was like 291 maybe. Um, so Alvarez is really, he's going to get you a home run or he's going to get you nothing. Um, and so it would be more of a concern concern there, and um, Trumbo would probably be a, a midpoint there. So it kind of depends what they're they're doing around it. Less of a concern with Davis. I think with, with Davis, I tend to remember, and I think a lot of people tend to remember when he was really slumping at his worst, and it seemed like he was always striking out. Um, but then when you look, when he is locked in, when he, he's hitting home runs, yes, he still has strikeouts, but he also, I think it speaks to seeing the ball well that you know he's hitting the home runs because he's seeing the ball well, but it also gives him um, more walks and a better on base percentage. Alvarez, it's you know, it, it's it's scary to think. I mean, he really is an all or nothing guy. And when I looked at the list in that that post, there's 30 times that guys have have had more than 30 home runs and struck out more than 180 times. And you look at some of the names, and it's a surprise. I mean, you see a Mike Trout on there, you see Jack Schmidt, um, uh, Bobby Bonds, and you think, oh, it's not so bad. And then you know, you look at guys that have done it um, that you you would expect, like a, an Adam Dunn that's on that list or a Ryan Howard. And I think. Um, as I think through that some, it speaks more to how often they're doing. I mean, a guy like Adam Dunn, it was, you know, that was kind of his thing. Uh, so several years of doing it. Uh, same with Ryan Howard. Those are scary scenarios. But uh, but you also see, you know, great players that, that do it as well. So all that to say, um, after a very long answer, I, I don't think it's uh, it's, it's a, the end of, of the Orioles. I think it's certainly that's something they can survive. Um, but they are going to need guys to get on base, and, including Davis. All right, so Matt is on board. He's on record for having said everything's going to be fine. The Orioles are going to be great. Uh, they're going to be able to outslug their way out of every problem. You're going to feel better. Um, you're going to get along better with your spouse. You're going to make more money. Everything is going to be better because the Orioles are going to hit. <laughs> Matt likes dongs. That's, that's, what, I I, that's yeah. what I'm hearing. That's what, that's what I heard. I'm hearing. Yeah. I think I was misquoted. No, 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 no. That doesn't happen on the show. <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, but coming back to the whole strikeout thing, and I think it's important just to not go too far, but go back just to last year, for example, and you've got two teams, the Astros and the Cubs, who struck out at a pretty ferocious rate. So the Cubs struck out 24.5% of the times when they came to the plate, and the Astros struck out 22.5% of the time. And you look at both those teams, and both those teams were playoff teams last year. And again, high mm-hmm. strikeout teams. I think it gets into the question of if the Orioles can actually hit as many home runs as they're projected, and they're projected for a ton um, one of the Fangraphs articles that came out last week where they were looking at projected 2016 team home runs has the Orioles projected to be right around 247 home runs. And the major league record is from the 1997 Mariners who hit 264. It's not outlandish to think that the Orioles could potentially get to 264. A lot of things would have to break their way. But it's not a crazy thought, all things considering, that they could destroy that record and there's no way in the world that i would have thought in this new era where there's no steroids no performance enhancements and even maybe not a live ball like there was back in the 90s um i would there'd be no way i would think that a team could ever put together such a a, a, a lumping just in terms of the first place team and the second place team in terms of difference 
there's like a 40 home run difference in terms of um, projected home runs between the Baltimore Orioles and the Houston Astros. I mean, that's a huge difference. This team is going to be feast or famine. It's going to be their strikeout, home run, strikeout, home run, strikeout, home run. I, I think it's going to be a really interesting scenario, an interesting formula. And it's certainly something that Dan Duquette has talked about saying the way you win the American League East is by hitting home runs. And to a certain aspect, he's right. The Blue Jays did it last year. The Yankees did it in 2012. It's an easy formula to win the American League East by hitting the most amount of home runs. Well, I think, and even if you just look at, at last season, I mean, that last season was the year that the Orioles set their team record for the most strikeouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't the, the lineup that was killing us in the end. It was the pitching. I mean, there's continued to be talk because of losing Cruz and Marquecas that all these lineups trouble, but it was, it was the pitching ultimately that did us in. And up until that, that slump um, in August, the Orioles were right there. I mean, I, I worked uh, a game in the press box when they, the walk off for um, Henry Arudia that uh, that they beat the Mets, you know, beat a very good Mets team, uh, played a good series with them and looked to be right there on the cusp of getting a wild card and then just, just fell flat. But with all those strikeouts last year and, you know, the, the slump and everything, they were right there close to a, a playoff berth. And so again, I, I think it, it just, it's easy to get distracted from the fact that the pitching is, is what's important. Um, and, and that's, what's keeping me up at night. So I'm, I'm hearing again that Matt Taylor is guaranteeing that the Orioles are going to break the home run record. It's going to happen. You should put money on it right now. <laughs> Mortgage the house, put it all on Orioles. Let me, let me ask a slightly more intelligent question than that, but it just as lazy. Um, Scott mentioned the high uh, K percentage as far as the Cubs and the Astros are concerned. One of the things that I look at as being the difference between those clubs and the Orioles is that those are young clubs. Those are clubs where the the offensive um, group that's coming up is learning and growing and getting better. And I don't necessarily think that that's the case with the Orioles. With the Orioles, I think you have guys who are, are basically are who we thought they were, with the exception of a guy maybe like Manny Machado who's already a star and might get better, or a guy like Jonathan Scope who's a pretty good secondary piece and may get better. Um, but with everybody else, this is the team we've got. I I wonder if the strikeout problem isn't more pronounced for a team like the Orioles than it is, say, for the Cubs, or the Astros. That's a it's an interesting take on it, and one of the I, th- I think overall, I mean, you have uh, a more free swinging club, and um, you know, I think we, we probably have seen some improvements, uh, like let's say in, in Adam Jones, but who's still you know overall is, is a free swinger, generally speaking, and. Um, I was interested you know, for, for some reason it, it popped into my head uh, this morning and thinking about some of this stuff as if I don't have enough other things to think about. Um, I, I thought back to, it was in 2010 when the Orioles uh, were still terrible and coming to you know, the end of their run of losing seasons, but Nick Markakis had actually come out. I think it was, it was later in the season. Um, and, and Nick Markakis who rarely said anything interesting publicly criticized the team. And he, he was criticizing, as I remember it, um, the, you know, the, the free swinging, the, the lack of a plan is really what he spoke to, that our batters don't have a plan going up there. And uh, shortly thereafter, I, I remember blogging about Boog Powell had done an interview with uh, 105.7 The Fan and talked about you know the, the free swinging and, and kind of responding to Mark Akis's comments. And he was very critical of you know the Orioles at that point striking out too much, um, having big swings, uh, particularly in, in two-strike counts, and saying, hey, you got to put the ball – in play, you're not helping the team by striking out, especially, um, you know, especially when you have runners out there, runners in scoring position. 
Um, so it, it's not necessarily a, a new issue. And I guess that, that makes me wonder too of, okay, there's a lot of, of free swinging, but you know, is this the plan? And I think for me, like even watching a guy like Jones and getting frustrated with some of you know, the cuts he's taking you know, the past few years, it's also, you know, he's never backed away from the fact that this is who I am. And even his scope was coming up and kind of uh, free swinger as well, kind of defending him to say, hey, this, you know, we, we're an aggressive ball club. That's what we do. Um, so I, th- I think there is something to be said for, hey, this is, this is who these guys are. And while there is some learning taking place with, with maybe guys like Machado, that overall they're going to be taking their cuts, that they're not backing away from kind of that free-swinging, all-or-nothing type ball club. Right, and the other thing too is if you went out and got a player that had a high on-base percentage, it wasn't going to spread through that clubhouse. The fact of the matter is, even if you went out and got a Dexter Fowler who had a very decent on-base percentage, it was only going to move the needle slightly. It, the whole team wasn't going to become a much better um, on-base percentage club or a team that was less aggressive to play that should play, better play discipline. This team is who they are. It is who we thought they were. They're going to be aggressive. They're going to swing for the fences. They're going to strike out a lot, and um, they're going to basically entertain the common fan to a certain regard. Jake, what, what's your next question? Well, you know, I, I wanted to to pick your brain, Matt, about this upcoming season, about 2016. What's something that you're looking forward to seeing the most in, in this upcoming season? Looking forward to seeing the, the most. Well, I think, I mean, certainly there's still that, uh, that, that 12-year-old boy in me that, that does love home runs and the big swingers. So I think there's a certain excitement about thinking about what these guys can do with the plate and, and seeing the ball go out of the yard a lot. Um, I think probably one of the things I'm, I'm most interested in uh, overall, I, I guess it's a part exciting and, and part also just thinking from a practical you know, need for the team. It's just the bullpen again. You know, I, I'm really interested to see uh, how the bullpen comes together. If O'Day is going to continue to deliver you know, the way he has, uh, especially after getting the, the contract, if Britain's going to be locked down there in the ninth and then kind of what the, the other makeup is there, you know, what are we going to get from, from given a lot of excitement around him um, and you know how does Bundy slot into all of this and the you know, potential for a really really exciting bullpen and I mean I think that Buck Showalter has really I think made fans appreciate if they're paying attention the importance of the, of the bullpen and, and what he can do with a good bullpen to patch up some other holes but really I mean as, as a fan over the long term I mean for, for the longest time uh, it's been such a key part for the Orioles I mean, you think back to they spent a ton of money, I think it was in 2007, uh, to get a few different guys, including Danny Baez. And, uh, you know, four, I think it was $41 million over three years that they, they spent to bring in three relievers and saying, okay, we're going to fix this bullpen. And uh, then they go out, and that, that was the season of, uh, you know, 30 to 3, and yep. uh, a terrible bullpen. And, uh, and, and so there was this period of trying to fix it, trying to throw money at it, um, and then kind of almost out of the blue in you know, 2012 comes along and we're thinking they're going to be bad again, but this, this bullpen is just incredible and winning one run games and uh, showing us that, you know, what, what a good bullpen can do. So I'm really excited to see kind of where, where the bullpen is at this year and what some of those new younger arms can, can do. And, you know, I, there's a lot of potential there. And I think especially you know, given there, there's some other really good bullpens, bullpens are kind of in vogue now, but um, you know, somewhere in that the Orioles haven't been talked about as much. It, it doesn't seem. And, I think there's a, a lot of potential there for that to be really exciting. And it's, it's just great to be in a game and, you know, get past a certain inning and really feel comfortable in those later innings. Like they've got this. So I, I hope, hope this season that um, that feeling persists. I like the en vogue reference there. Another fine Madonna. No, 
you know, not what no, you were going for. But I know also Jake enjoyed the aspect of you t- talking about, you know, bullpen help before 2012, like Michael Gonzalez and Kevin Gregg, um, uh, some of Jake's favorites, basically. Fat Albers. Yeah, Fat Albers, yeah. Um, but I think it's really interesting coming back to the whole reliever aspect because you look at the Orioles rotation and it really gives you that meh feeling. But what's really interesting is if you go back and look at the beginning of 2015, and I want to talk about Kevin Gossman to a certain aspect, um, because when we looked at him last year, you know, he definitely came into the rotation, kind of bounced back and forth, back and forth. But when he first started in April, they couldn't make the decision whether or not they wanted to do him in the rotation or work as him almost as a long man to a certain aspect. So they started out him in April throwing multiple games, two innings apiece. Um, and I think that's a really valuable skill set to have for a player to be able to come out every three days and throw two innings, mainly because it helps to preserve the bullpen long-term. So you don't always have to be rushing a O'Day, a Britain, or someone else out there to always go and say they're always going out there every single game. We saw what happened with the Yankees last year by putting Miller out there every single day. He ended up being injured in the process. Um, using players such as Dylan Bundy or even a Vance Worley for two or three innings apiece should be able to save the bullpen to a certain regard and be able to preserve um, some of the dominance that we've seen at the back end with Darren O'Day and Zach Burton. So, yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you, Matt. You know, I'm really interested to see what some of the younger guys can do, and I'm really been encouraged by what Dylan Bundy can do. I think that Dylan Bundy is going to be a major X factor for this team in terms of being a multi-inning reliever. And I think the team is going to need to have that multi-inning reliever uh, based on the uh, the lack of a starting rotation that can go deep into ball games. Yeah, and there, there are a couple of interesting things that, that come out of that. And, you know, Bundy's an interesting case in terms of what he can do, you know, out of the bullpen, and then also wondering, is this a step toward you know, being a starter? And that, that used to be the model. I mean, Jim Palmer started out of the, the bullpen, Mike Flanagan. I mean, that was the, the way guys kind of learned to, to pitch. Um, so that, that's one aspect of it. But the other one that, that you touched on there that, that I'm really, really curious about is, you know, we talk about shortening the game. How much can we shorten the game? You know, like what, what is realistic to say well, beyond this inning, it's, it's locked down. So, I mean, I think back to the, uh, the torturous time in the late 90s when it was the Yankees with Wetland and Rivera and you knew, hey, you get, you get to the eighth inning and you don't have a lead or you're, you're tied, you're done against the Yankees. And, um, you know, the Royals you know, have, have a similar model now and you can even say seven, eight, nine. But how much can you, can you extend that? How many innings can you say that they're going to shorten the game and what does that, that really mean? Because the beginning of last season, so much of the talk early on was, you know, relievers or the starters can't get into the sixth inning. You know, we've got to get guys into the sixth inning. We're, we're going to kill the bullpen. Um, so I, I think as you, you, you talk about Bundy as an X factor, that's critical, right? Do you have a guy that can um, go out and throw a couple innings and, and preserve the bullpen, even if the starters aren't going as deep as we need, which is, you know, uh, very likely. Yeah, and I think the other thing, too, is it comes back to, Last year, preserving that bullpen was so important because you couldn't shuttle anyone from Norfolk. There was nobody that was being able to be optioned because of Jason Garcia on the roster. Whereas this year, it looks like that may potentially be an option with um, maybe not Vance Worley or Dylan Bundy so much in the bullpen, with, but with players like Miguel Gonzalez who have an option. Maybe you form a Norfolk shuttle with Miguel Gonzalez and you bring up a Tyler Wilson to make a spot start and say, okay, now we're going to go ahead and uh, bring some up to be a long man for this game. I think that if the Orioles are going to succeed this year, they're going to have to do it with bits and pieces just like they did in 2012 and 2014. And it's not going to be 
the sum of one person's contribution in the rotation of the bullpen, but it's going to be the sum of five or six players all equating out to be a, a positive value to us in regard. And what I what I think is that it was very reckless of Matt to declare at this time that Dylan Bundy is off to a legendary Hall of Fame career and that this bullpen collectively will be one remembered for the rest of baseball history. Did you know that Dylan Bundy so never have, hasn't given up a Grand Slam yet? He's never given up a Grand Slam. Yep, so he's going to have a Jim Palmer-like career is what Matt Taylor said. You are just better, a font of dollar. Better than Palmer. See, he just said it. <laughs> and, and a better yeah. broadcasting career. You know, it actually makes sense, too, because he went out and got the eye surgery. So, of course, the modeling gig is coming this year, is my guess. <laughs> can, can we also just say, I'm not only going to say all that, I'm going to say he's also going to be better at Twitter if that still exists when he's Palmer's age. Wow. And, and, and Palmer's pretty good on Twitter. So there's, there's that, too. I love the fact that you just let us back you into a corner and then you doubled down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to keep you guessing. Well, Matt, we want to say thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, also, everyone should know that Matt has also been selected as a blogger for Masson Weekly, so it's important to follow him with the blogger forum. Um, Matt, do you know a day that you're going to be posting on Masson Sports uh, yet? It was Thursdays last year, is that right? Uh, it, was, it was Fridays last Fridays. year. It'll be Fridays again this year. Yeah. Great. So every Friday, check him out at MassonSports.com. He'll be writing weekly on there, giving his thoughts about the Orioles, and again, Check out Roar from 34 um, to basically get all the insight about the historical nature of baseball in Baltimore, but also get a, a feel for how well Matt Taylor's predictions are going for the 2016 season. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, exactly. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I enjoyed it. That's right, folks. It's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is where we go through and uh, basically make wild accusations in terms of uh, Orioles spring training this season. So uh, I'll start this week. I'm going to go with my good. And uh, my good this week is going to go to, well, it's got to go to Hansu Kim. I, I think that uh, it kind of covers a topic that we've talked about. Hansu Kim is... I'm not saying going to be a dynamite player, but I think it's given some um, alleviated some of that concern to a certain aspect. And having a player that can actually make contact in this order is uh, is reassuring, and not just saying whiff upon whiff upon whiff upon whiff. I don't think no, if Hunsu Kim actually is ever going to be that number one or number two um, person in the lineup. But if he could easily be a number eight or number nine and actually turn over the lineup, I'm perfectly okay with that, especially for only three and a half million dollars per year or so. Hansu Kim is my good for the week. Keep doing what you're doing, and uh, we'll keep giving you those large plates of Korean barbecue. That's a good one. My good for this week is Dylan Bundy uh, and what he's done, not only this week, but in spring training so far. I actually watched him pitch for an inning, and he was just really locked in. He was throwing the ball well. The velocity was good, but everything looked right. Um, and he's an important player for this organization. You know, I'm not really sold on whether or not he can ever start again, but even if he can be a great reliever for us for a period of time, um, it's better than what we've had over the past couple of years. So I was really encouraged by what I saw from Dylan Bundy. Again, it was one of those things where you, you read it, um, you know, in the reports from the, the beat writers, but when you actually see it with your own eyes, um, 
I felt a lot better this week than I did last week. All right, so my bad for the week. Um, I, I'm going to have to give it to, again, starting pitching, again, being completely inconsistent. Got a little bit better this week, which is why they're not going to be my ugly. But command issues certainly have seemed to be there. There's been a lot of walks, um, a lot of like non-movement of pitches. Again, not willing to raise the concern, um, but just a little bit, uh, a little unnerving just going into the season. Again, only two weeks out. Um, the one thing that I am encouraged about is at least they're getting deeper into games and they're getting that work that they necessarily need to get in in order to build themselves up for the endurance to have for the rest of the season. But my bad, again, goes to spring, uh, starting pitching. My bad this week is going to go to spring training televised schedule. All right, I, I don't understand. I get the fact that there are one o'clock games in spring training because that's when you play games in Florida and that's when you have the time after the games to actually continue to get guys working. Look, I, I get all that. Most people can't watch games at one o'clock on weekdays. So why are there not more replays at 7 p.m.? It would cost them nothing to air that game again. Nothing. So bad for this week. Spring training televised schedule. Come on, Orioles. Put it together. Give us a little something on Masson. All right. Um, my ugly for this week. I'm sorry. It's going to have to go to Jim Palmer. There's been no Jim Palmer in the booth this whole spring training. And not to mention every single time that Jim Palmer has really popped onto Twitter as of recently. It's for, for like sponsoring like arthritis medicine. Instead. Look, Jim, buddy, you got plenty of money. You don't need to be pitching arthritis stuff on Twitter. Leave that to the folks like us to be popping out and saying, hey, let's make the extra $100 and pop this arthritis stuff. Jim, you're one of the greatest color commentators of all time. Don't blow this from me. Stick to doing what you're do- good at doing. Wearing the underwear and talk about Orioles baseball. I was going to say, you'd be fine if it was jockey. Well, exactly. I had no issue with that as long as there's pictures of, in, in Twitterverse as well. Go ahead. Who's your ugly for the week? My ugly for the week is the Adam LaRoche story. Oh, I'm so sick of hearing about it. This is it. so dumb. It's Dumb. It's middle school dumb is what it is. And look, I, I'm not going to... Actually, isn't a 14-year-old normally in high school? <laughs> I'm not going to get into who's right and who's wrong. But you had a situation that got blown out of proportion and got way out of control. A player ended up taking his ball and going home and retiring. And then you had more and more media attention just get lopped onto it. This is one of those situations where the media, social media, fans... Everybody made this situation worse than it already was ridiculous. I am so sick of hearing. I'm sick of the fact that I know that Drake LaRoche is a person. I, I'm irritated that I know his name. So it needs to be over now. This story is ugly. And I'm tired of it. All right. That was an excellent ugly, by the way. I think that everyone in baseball land would feel that maybe this time. But I think it's time we go ahead and close the show out. With a little blow in the save, if you don't, if you don't mind. So why don't you go ahead and take that? Well, Scott, I, I really feel like we need to address the elephant in the room. Mm. And uh, you know, you and I don't always agree on this show. Yeah, and I think this is going to be one of those times. Brian Roberts. Oh yeah, made his triumphant return to the organization. Triumphant as a as an announcer. Yeah, a color commentator. He was in the booth. Yeah. And I feel like your impression of how Brian Roberts' uh, booth time and my impression of Brian Roberts' booth time is a little different. So I just want to give you the the chance to briefly tell me what you thought so then I can tell you you're wrong. I felt like he was like a Mike Borg-esque player, very 
hard on the ears and not that great, all honesty. It was his first time in there, but still, meh, not that great. I didn't think there was anything wrong with what Brian Roberts did. And I, I've heard him on MLB Network Radio. Yeah. I've seen him on MLB Network. Uh, I've seen him actually a few years ago on Masson. I think he's got the chops to develop into uh, this role. And the one thing that I'll give Brian Roberts in his first appearance, still trying to make sure he gets a, a, a chokehold on this gig in the future, is that he had the gumption to criticize the team. It was actually a play in which he politely but he politely yeah. said that Manny Machado olayed uh, an error, which ended up turning into a grand slam uh, mm-hmm. a little while later, which is not something <laughs> that Mike Bordick ever would have done. True. So I'm going to go to the mattresses for Brian Roberts and say— I bet you want to go to the mattresses with Brian Roberts. <laughs> I'm delighted to to hear his voice again. Look, I, all I'm going to say to this is, and I understand where you're coming from. Again, he's, he's getting indoctrinated, but again— if you're going to go out and find a color commentator, again, the Orioles are in need for a color commentator and to get more people into the booth. You should go out there and find someone with some significant TV experience. So if I'm looking for someone with significant TV experiences, I'm looking for someone that was on like network television, maybe deal or no deal. And I'm looking right at you, Diana Roberts. Diana Roberts could easily fit this role as a television personality and be easy eye candy for the rest of us watching Masson. It would at least balance out Jim Hunter when I'm watching the game. So... That's my recommendation. I think we've successfully gone out on a weak note and blown this save. I'm glad that we've we've officially blown that save very well. So two weeks ago, uh, what are you looking forward to in the next two weeks? I'm looking forward to seeing games that are more like real games. This is the time in spring training when you start to see, you know, more realistic lineups and, and you know, starters go deeper. I think that this is the time where spring training is actually a little more palpable. You know what I'm looking forward to? Keeping people healthy, because I remember last season, J.J. Hardy getting hurt in one of these games right at the end of the season. You shut your mouth. Yeah, and uh, again, watching eagerly to figure out what's going on with Kevin Gossman. So with that... Baltimore and beyond, I have nothing more for you. So I bid you a fond adieu adieu. Good night, Baltimore. Be safe out there. And let's go O's. It's over. Go home. Go.